Hey friends, and welcome back to another episode of Thriving Thoughts. I'm your host, Dr. Sherry. Today, you guys are in for a special treat because I have decided to interview my beautiful cousin and lifelong friend. Yeah, I guess she's a lifelong cousin too, Kendra Alvarez. Now, I know I pushed her a little bit outside of her comfort zone in this episode, but I'm also pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. You'll hear in the first part of our conversation how my dear brother reached out to me and said, hey, maybe you should have a fact-checking portion of your podcast. So today you're going to hear a little correction that I'd like to share with you, and I'm just honored to be able to do that and grow in the process from episode 102. So you'll hear that in the conversation. But today's conversation is all about thriving alone, in other words, growing in a really dark space. And Kendra is being very vulnerable because she's sharing her story of her and her husband when her husband, who was undocumented, they decided to embark on this journey to get him residency in the United States. And all of the fears and all of the alone spaces, including a five-month separation while he was in his country of origin and she was back in the States with two, with twin 18-month-olds and a three-year-old. I love how Kendra just peels back the layers and even reveals some of the things that she hasn't thought about for years that maybe she can still use now to grow even more. So if you are someone who's fearing that process, this immigration process, this legalization process, oh, by the way, her husband just three years ago ended that process with United States citizenship. And that is something to celebrate. There is hope at the end of an uncertain, dark, alone tunnel, especially when it comes to a story of immigration. So without further delay, here is my conversation with my cousin and friend, Kendra Alvarez. Kendra and I were just having a conversation and then we'll dive into our conversation, but we're having a conversation because my brother sent me this very gracious email, you know, and he was like, Hey, I don't know. I don't know if this is helpful or annoying or, you know, whatever, but do you have a fact check portion on your podcast? And I was like, well, I don't, I never have, but nobody's really said, Hey, you got that wrong. I've said stuff a couple of times that I'm like, Hey, I said this, but what I really meant to say, or what I probably should have said instead is this anyway, but it was scriptural facts, which I'm not a theologian. So, Hey, game on, bring it, you know, correct me. So we're going to say it in this interview, like you're just here with me. See, I love being held accountable. Um, I do. It, and it's helped me grow. It's really helps me grow. And it used to like make my face turn all red and make my heart beat really fast. Like I'm a horrible human being, but now it's more like, okay, this is good. I need this to, to grow so I can be stronger at what I do better at what I do. So anyway, uh, two things in the, in, uh, episode 102 with Ernest Bryant, I referred to the Aaron and Aaron and other people helping Moses hold up his rod so that the sea would stay parted. Okay. So that did happen, but not with the sea story, right? (laughs) Other story, like a battle. So anyway, it wasn't a malicious um, oversight, but it was an oversight. So I'm thankful to my brother for um, pointing that out. And then the second one was um, my guest said something that's very popular and common in um, 
the evangelical culture, which is this interpretation of Jesus stumbling. And so that's it. It's an interpretation. It's an actual um, extrapolation because there's no specific scripture that says that he did that, but it's an, it's a natural inference as well, because I think if somebody rushes to somebody's aid, you think, oh, well, then that person needs help, right? So, um, but to be clear, there is no specific scripture about that. So you, my dear Kendra, are the first to be witness, to bear witness to this fact-checking portion of the show. So thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay, everybody. So I have to introduce you to Kendra Alvarez. And you may not know this, but Kendra is my dear, beautiful, lovely friend. Yes. And cousin, we grew up together because we spent many uh, summers together as children. And so for those of you um, that don't know, I was raised in the suburbs, right? And I was a farm girl. (laughs) So it's like city mouse, country mouse, right? (laughs) And um, so anyway, Kendra used to make fun of me. Um, Yeah, you did. She called me a city slicker. And I was like, literally, like, I like total suburb girl, right? Not even city, but yeah, you called me a city slicker, but I love, I just love our history. Um, and I love the fact that we've known each other all of our lives through a lot of stuff. Sure um, <laughs> and we love each other unconditionally. Absolutely. And so, um, I asked you to come on the show and be really vulnerable, which is something that you, along with so many other people hate. But I ask people to do that, um, not for you, but I mean, it will help you, but for the sake of other people, because so many times, especially as women, we do not believe that other people go through what we're going through. And I find that when we are vulnerable with our mistakes, just like when I was talking about, oh, I got the scripture stuff wrong. It's not, there's no shame in that. Like, it's just okay, let's share and sharing reduces shame. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do today. And I asked you to come on the show because you went through a remarkable experience. Um, And there are probably many, many pieces of the story that I don't know. So I hope I learn more today. Um, But this season is thriving alone. And I um, wanted you to come on specifically to talk about your experience when your husband was sent to Mexico to await the verdict of whether or not he was going to be able to obtain citizenship here, basically, (laughs) in a nutshell. I imagine that you felt alone to some degree in that experience or to a large degree. A very large degree. (laughs) Okay. So, right. See, perfect guest for season four. So, um, and a very relevant topic right now. And so I know this is going to just be so impactful and, um, not just raise awareness, but, but raise an understanding of what happens within us when we go through these things. So share with us, um, share with me, when was the first moment in that experience? And you can even go back if you want and say like, here's what led up to that. Um, when did you start feeling alone in that experience? What was going on? So I would say I felt alone actually even before the immigration process started in a lot of ways. Okay. And as you had me like starting to think about this topic, listening to your podcasts and stuff, I thought to myself, so there have been times in my life 
where I haven't been alone. Like I've still had people who have had my back. I still knew that God was with me, mm-hmm. but that didn't change the thought, the fact that I felt very alone in the experiences that I was having. So what were some of those experiences? So a lot of them were some, of, as I was thinking about this, so a lot of my aloneness feeling was of my own making. And the fact that you are coming on with this whole session on shame, I'm like, wow. So a lot of my alone was because of my own shame, Mm. because of ways I have failed in the past, the experience decisions that I've made and the consequences of those decisions. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of me that thought that I didn't deserve to be supported that I was going through. But that was my shame. That was my shame. Okay. Oh, this is is good. I didn't even know we were going to go here. (laughs) But something you just said resonated with me, and I know it's going to resonate with people, but deserving support. And you and I share very similar experiences in that, I think, in that shame department, um, which everyone has shame, but this is how it plays out. So why did you at that time, Um, and maybe even still, maybe that's not fully resolved for you. I don't know. I'll leave Mm -hmm. that for you to share or not share. I'm going to be attending your session. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let me just uh, do a little aside. So if you follow me on Facebook, um, on my personal page, not my public figure page, but if you follow me on Facebook, on my personal page, I'm doing a series on surrendering shame. So that's what Kendra is referring to every Wednesday. I'm doing a little video about that. So check, check us out there. Um, but alone because of the shame and not deserving of support. So at the time, what experiences, why did you not feel deserving of support? Um, I believe because a lot of the decisions that I made in my past affected my family Um, I knew that I had brought shame to my family for a lot of choices that I had made. So therefore, like, why would I expect my family to rally around me and support me? Which, unbelievingly, they did. Of course they did. did. Of course they did. Yeah, of course they did. But I think that's that's what shame does, is it lies to us. Mm -hmm. And it makes us think that we're supposed to pay for something for the rest of our lives, right? Like, but that's the beauty of, I mean, just the parallel of that is God's grace. Like we aren't deserving of it and we have it in spades, like craziness, right? So, but yeah, not deserving of support. It's interesting. I had, um, when I had an ectopic pregnancy at 21, I remember, and for years, it took me years that I didn't believe I had permission to grieve. Like, cause you just don't, you know? Yep. So that was another big part of it. What you just said about not believing that you're deserving of support. Well, if I didn't believe that my family, like I deserve the support and the love yep. of my family to rally around me, even less so did I feel like I deserved God to walk through it with me. Mm. So then that brings So then up- you're really alone. Yeah. And it brings up the whole thing of like, I can't even ask him to help me in this situation. Mm. I can't even ask him for his favor Ooh. because I've already done everything that I needed to, to fall out of favor. So it's, it's fascinating because so <laughs> when you're feeling alone in these moments and, and then you have this shame because you're alone because of 
your badness or your wrongness, mm-hmm. right? And then that doesn't le- that doesn't lead you to seek after the comfort and support that you it leads you to further isolation. Exactly. Which is increased aloneness, which is guaranteed aloneness. Exactly. So you felt like your family wasn't going to support you or care about or should care about this situation that you're going through with your husband. Tell us what the situation was. So after Efrain and I had been married about three years, um, he had been, he had come to the United States undocumented mm-hmm. and became a Christian while he was here. And we felt like we needed to make that situation right, that him being here undocumented needed to change. Oh my gosh. So can I just ask, like, what was that decision-making process like? Because I'm sure you thought of like all these, if we go down this road, this is what could happen. Not to mention that we spoke to several different attorneys who told us that what would happen is that the minute that we applied for his residency, he would get thrown in jail. He would get immediately deported, that there would be a 10-year deportation where he had no option to to come back to the state. So right away we were we were hit in the face with like all of the worst. Exactly. If you try it, it's not going to go well. You might as well just stay here undocumented, basically. So why didn't you? <laughs> because we felt that it was really important yeah. to to get his status updated. At that point we had two kiddos. Um, and we just, we just felt like it was supposed, we were supposed to get his, his status updated to resident at least. And make it right. Yeah. And the other thing that had us really feeling, had me feeling very alone. So English is not my husband's first language, which Mm -hmm. meant I got to make all the phone calls, do all the applications and all of that. And at that point, there was not anybody else that we had close contact with at all who had walked through the, the process of immigration. Okay. So alone I'm, on all fronts, emotional support, uh, logistical navigation, and having to do all of the things. And nobody to ask questions of, honestly, like it was looking stuff up on the internet. Asking, now, how long ago was this? So Alexia was... It was close to 12 years ago. Okay. So this process was completed when? Um, 2012. He became a resident in, why didn't you ask me these questions before? Um, no, no, but I'm saying, when did he get his citizenship? Okay. He's only been a citizen, a citizen for three years. Okay. This is what I'm saying. So yes. that whole process from starting it, to citizen took eight years? Yes. Goodness gracious. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail you there, but that's, I think that's important for context. It's been, it was a long journey. The day that he took his citizenship oath was a day of great celebration. We even let the kids skip school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. Okay. So you started navigating all of this stuff. Um, at, at what point in that process did you, or did you start to reach out for more support? So after we got the, um, the application and all of that filled out, there was really nobody that I could go to at that point. Like I had to ask, um, I had to actually bring in an attorney because there was nobody that I could ask questions for the application process. Um, 
so in some ways that attorney helped to alleviate some of my my stress but the moment that i finally got the the paperwork back saying that his application had been accepted and that it was now in process okay. i actually went to my extended family okay. told them what was going on one of those happens to be your dear dad Aww. who has div- there's just a relationship with your dad and my husband that I have no idea why it happened or how it happened, but Ephraim loves your dad and your dad loves Ephraim. And so I remember at your dad and mom's house, they invited without us knowing many of my aunts and uncles, your aunts and uncles, and they had a prayer time for us as this process was starting to move forward and Ephraim was going to be going to Mexico. I did not know that. They did. And it was phenomenal. And that is the moment when I knew that even though I had thought that I had been ostracized from the family, even though I thought I wouldn't have the support of my family, I was just, I was blown away by the support and the prayer. Yeah. And that's another example of how how shame can evolve, just grow into this huge lie that you're not deserving of support. So therefore don't reach out for support. So therefore you're going to be lonelier. It's an example of how, when we believe lies, it becomes our reality. Mm-hmm. And so that was an opportunity for you to go, oh, huh. I, I do have support. I do have people who love me. And at that point, also in my relationship with Ephraim, so a kind of backstory Mm -hmm. is that there was a part in my life, a time in my life, I grew up in the church, I grew up with the godly parents walked away. Mm -hmm. And Ephraim and Ephraim was not a believer at the time. Mm -hmm. So even at that point, I had started going back to church after about three years of being away from church, I had gone back, but by myself. Well, with my kiddos, mm-hmm. Ephraim refused. He refused. He refused. He was not ever going to go to a Christian church. <laughs> okay. All right. Those crazy Christians. I know. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so on that front, also I felt alone because yeah. I didn't have um, a spiritual family around me. Yes. Yes. And Ephraim didn't hold the same belief system that I had. Wow. So. so what, so that's interesting because I imagine your decision to begin the residency process was based in large part to maybe what you felt convicted to do, mm-hmm. but he didn't have that. Not as much. No. So I know you can't speak for him, but if you guys have talked about this, did he say anything about what his motivation was? Like, even though he knew all of, all of the risks, um, I think he knew that his motivation was that the benefits were greater as far as he would not have to worry anymore about what if I have a traffic violation and get deported while I have my babies at home. Um, I think for him, the motivation was more of just the logistics. The practical. How hard it is to be an undocumented person here in the United States. Can you talk about that for a few minutes? Um, I don't think that it's outside the scope of the conversation because I think that people do feel alone. Mm -hmm. And there's there's, um, a stigma uh, uh, with everything. I mean, we all have opinions about everything that we know nothing about. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so what were some of the challenges? You said it was hard to live an undocumented life. So what were the biggest challenges as you, you recall them from the early years of your relationship? Well, again, pretty much everything fell on me. If we wanted to get a credit card, if we wanted to get a, a, a rental agreement, everything had to go through me because he had no paperwork um, Got it. to show for any of that. Um, no health insurance. Mm. He was paying taxes the whole time, never knowing that he would never see anything from those taxes. <laughs> so I think for him, it was a lot of what the benefits would be to him being documented versus so much of a conviction as it was for me. Okay. It turned into that. Yeah. It a little like through the process, which. Yeah. So um, tell us about maybe even though you're, you're moving forward with this, you know, the risks, you know, all of that logically, but certainly when you're feeling alone, even if that ebbs and flows with the influx of family support or logistical support, whatever that is, um, when, when you're feeling alone, there are moments of desperation, desperately alone, despair. Mm -hmm. Did you have any of those moments in that process? And if so, would you share them with us? I did. I had a lot of those moments. And I feel like one of the things that was hard for me was I was feeling my own desperation. I was feeling my own fear. Um, so when we were going through the immigration process, the, the rule was that he had to leave the country, go to his country of origin. That's where the appointment would take place. That's where they would decide if he was eligible for what they call a waiver. Okay. Asking for forgiveness for having entered illegally. Okay. At this point in the game, a lot of the appointments are happening here and they know that they're eligible for the waiver before they ever have to leave the country. So when he left, when we went to Mexico for his appointment, we did not know if he was even eligible for that waiver. If he had not been found eligible for the waiver, it was a mandatory 10 years outside of the United States. That's when we Whoa. left. So, 10 years, that's a huge risk. As we got on that plane to leave for Mexico, we did not know. So how, wait, how long into the process was that? So that was um, about three years after the initial wow. okay. application. Okay, so you guys are on the plane. Family left in the states? Yes. Well, okay. no. The kids. The kids went with us. We okay. decided that we would all fly down, fly down with the hopes that maybe, just maybe, God's favor would be upon us, mm -hmm. and He would come back with His paperwork with us. Mm -hmm. We had planned to stay for a month. That didn't happen. He was found eligible for his, um, for the waiver. Okay. But that involved a waiting process. That was a huge, huge moment of desperation for me when we got that verdict that so, he would be allowed to come back to the States with us. Okay. So he was eligible to basically be forgiven and continue on this process, yep. but his eligibility limited him to stay in his country of origin. And we had no idea how long that would take. There was a, another person in his hometown who had put in an application before he did, had his appointment before he did, and was there for two years. Like he was going on his, his second year of being there. So we didn't have any idea how long this waiting process was going to be. What, and I, give us a glimpse of, because at some point you and the kids came back. We did. And you had to leave your husband behind. 
And I was dealing with my own fears and desperation. That's what I was about to say while having to help my kids walk through theirs, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Right. So let's touch on that a minute, because I think a lot of times, a lot of moms feel alone because they are, um, or they feel alone because they begin to stifle and dismiss or stuff down their own stuff for, to be able to be strong, quote unquote, for the kids. And I'm, you know, I'm this touchy feely person that I believe like kids need to see that you hurt too. And this is how you work through hurt. You know, I know that's very shrinky of me, but it's true. Um, because otherwise they grow up thinking, gosh, adults never have any problems. Right. We're not supposed to feel anything. Right. Right. So what were some of the biggest, um, moments of grief? Because that's, I'm sure what you were going through was grief, um, and a prolonged period of grief at that, especially with uncertainty for you, for yourself, what you mentioned for yourself, the dealing with that for you, and then for your kids, what were some of the most challenging moments? Well, the most, one of the most challenging was the airport where we had to say our goodbyes. He went with us to the airport. We got on the plane to come back and my kids, um, my twins were 18 months and Alexia was, um, three, three and a half. So they knew we were saying goodbye to daddy. They knew the the basic, the best way that we could describe to them was that he didn't have the papers that he needed to be able to travel with us. They knew that those were the papers that we had been praying for forever. So that was our best way. Having to help them as we got on the plane, they said goodbye to daddy and we didn't know. We didn't know when we would see him again. That was one. Wait, was there, what did that look like? Was there a lot of crying? Was there a lot of, there was clinging to daddy's legs. It was heart wrenching. It was heart wrenching. And, and Ephraim trying his best as a good Mexican man to maintain his composure. (laughs) But you could just see him dying inside just that he was struggling so much to maintain his composure. It was, wow. Anyway. The day after we returned to the United States, um, my mom had been at our apartment to help air out the apartment and get us settled back in. She stayed overnight. And in that airing out the apartment process, she opened a window that neither of us thought about that there was any issue with that. We lived on a second story apartment. So the day after we returned from Mexico, one of my twins fell out of that window the second story window onto the concrete below Mm. and I was faced with I ran down from our second story apartment to the downstairs thinking that I would probably find my child dead on the sidewalk and then the whole thought thank god he was alive he was actually sitting up saying mommy to me but he was rushed to the hospital that is Um, miraculous yeah, it is a fractured skull, definitely banged up, but he survived, which is a miracle. But in that process, I had to find a way to tell my husband, who was now stuck in Mexico and had no way of coming, what had happened. That was a moment of desperation and feeling so alone um, because we didn't know if 
we didn't know if Natan would survive the night. We didn't know. We right. just, and to be, that was another moment when I felt very alone and a lot of desperation. Um, there were a lot of moments. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting is I didn't know. I remember that. Um, I, I remember getting the call. Um, I don't even know who, maybe it was my parents or the text maybe, mm-hmm. or call. I don't remember, but I just remember I immediately hit the floor. I mean, and I was not at the prime of my spiritual game either, but not spiritual game. Weird me people. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but um, I, I hit the floor. Like I hit my knees. I remember I had this ottoman and I just hit the floor and I just started praying. And I remember very clearly, I don't even know if I ever told you this, but I remember I got up and I was actually entertaining. I had guests at the time and they were all outside on the deck and I had gone inside. And I remember I walked out on the deck and they were like, what's wrong? And I was like, nothing. I was like, my cousin's son fell out of the window, but he's going to be totally fine. Like I, I'm serious. I have never like that sense of, I had 100% peace, 100% confidence. And, and so I was like, it's okay. There's nothing wrong. Like he's going to be okay. Wow. Yes. Yes. (laughs) He's got some anger issues. <laughs> we'll count that as the frontal lobe damage. Right. right. No. no, that was a miracle. Yes, definitely. So, but I didn't know that was the day after you had, like, talk about like trauma upon trauma upon trauma. How did Which you not I, break down? I think I had moments of breaking down. But I had four little kids who were around me watching me and I couldn't, I couldn't break down. And I honestly think that this is why when you asked me about that time of my life, like, I really do think the trauma has like, helped me to erase a bunch of it. There's a lot of things that I, I feel like I, I, I'm disconnected from. (laughs) Do you feel like this conversation is bringing up stuff for you that you didn't, that you think maybe you need to take a closer look at? Absolutely. <laughs> I do. I, like, as you're asking me questions and there are just so many things that are, that come flooding back where I'm like, wow, I don't remember. I don't remember feeling this way in that moment, mm-hmm. but the feelings are there now. Like that I can, yeah. I can, I think I can put words to what I was feeling. I think that what you were saying about moms and how we often stifle mm-hmm. our own thing. I think I did that a lot. I just knew that I had to be strong for my kids. My kids cried daily asking for their poppy. It was daily phone calls if we had good enough connection. Both, all three of my youngest kids had birthdays while dad was in Mexico. And just having to go through the motions to try to keep them having the most normal, consistent routine yeah. in life that they could. I didn't deal with a lot of what I was feeling. Well, yeah. And what about the financial strain, the financial stressors? That was also terrifying. Because Ephraim uh, is like, he's like a hard worker. That dude. He is. Yeah. He's our, he's our breadwinner. And with three practically babies at home, it was hard for me to work. But my, my dear mama would drive an hour each week so that I could fill up at least one day. I'm a Spanish interpreter. Mm-hmm. I could have filled up at least one day of appointments um, for interpreting, which was just a huge blessing to us. Um, and as I look back, or well, even then, there were definitely, I could see God's provision for our family. Like we would just get, 
some of our family would send me a check in the mail or um, actually the church that I had been attending by myself, this was actually a big kind of a factor in Ephraim deciding that maybe he should give church and God a second look. Um, but that church actually covered Ephraim ended up being in Mexico for five months. Um, while eternity. It was an eternity, but in the light of eternity, it was nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> there were people that were there for two and three years. Yeah, yeah. So it was, we felt like God moved things along quickly. However, it did feel like really long, sure. but um, that church actually covered four months of our rent for us, wow. which was, we didn't know that was going to happen. Um, of course not. So yeah. as um, thankfully the landlord knew of what our situation was and he told us that he would wait on that rent until Ephraim came back, that he would not kick us, uh, us out of the apartment, that kind of thing. So we thought that we would just, Ephraim would come back and we would just have to work really hard to pay it back, to pay back. But that church actually paid for our rent, which was phenomenal. Wow. And another, another example of how I was really not alone when I felt alone. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. Fast forward us to like, what were the, ne what were the major milestones after he came back? After he came back. So it was pretty quick that he got like his paperwork as far as his green card and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I am not going to lie to you <laughs> that that green card made me happy. But the day that he got his driver's license, uh. I cried. I cried. I cried. Like, I didn't even cry when he got his green card. I was like, hallelujah, we got the green card. Yes. But when he got his driver's license because our entire relationship together, I feared every time he walked out the door that if by any chance somebody hit his car or right. anything like that, any kind of violation, he was going to be deported. Yeah. And so the day that he walked out the door with a driver's license and I didn't feel that fear anymore mm -hmm. was like <laughs> the most phenomenal feeling in the world. That's incredible. I love that. <laughs> Which is crazy. You would think that the social security card and the green card and all of that, but no. No, it but was, it's the practical it piece. Yeah. It's the daily impactful piece. So um, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, well, you didn't finish answering. Go ahead. I interrupted you. So Major milestones. Um, the milestones, I, I have to just tell you though, that the first milestone was bringing him home. Mm. He flew in and I didn't tell my kids I was going to the airport. Oh my goodness. And I went and picked him up and he walked in the door and to see the look of joy on their faces, my boys had just learned how to do somersaults. They did them the whole way across the floor to their dad. That was huge. That was an amazing day for our family. Wow. Um, there, were, there were things along the way. I think people knew that like he had been gone for five months. We were financially, it was still a stressor, mm -hmm. even though that church was so generous. Um, there were a lot of bills that, needed caught up on and Christmas came okay. and right before Christmas morning, I think it was Christmas Eve morning, our doorbell rang and I walked downstairs to where we would normally find somebody at the door. And there was this huge, I mean, like body size plastic container <laughs> sitting there with the name Alvarez on it. 
I was like, okay. So we towed it up the steps. It was full of Christmas gifts for our kids and um, (laughs) pantry supplies. Not alone. Not alone. Not alone. And to this day, I don't know who did that. I don't know. You're kidding. I don't. But every Christmas, we do a ding and dash in honor and in memory of what was done for us. I, that is beautiful. I love that. So we, we kind of watch during the year and pinpoint a family that we think could use some, some help, some blessing. And we do that. Ding and dash. <laughs> I love that. That could be a new Christmas jingle. It's really fun. <laughs> you can write it for me. Okay. That is super, super special because a lot of times we can just get so caught up in the in the grief of our own experiences that we don't learn to take that and use it for our, our growth and for the betterment of others. And that's, you know, that's the primary principle behind thriving thoughts is that we grow in the toughest spaces. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just the truth of it. We don't grow when life is, you know, Skittles and rainbows. True story. True story. So (laughs) um, with that segue, let me ask you this. What are because it's all about growth and, and using that experience is a huge experience, an eight-year experience. But like you said, before that even started, what have you learned about yourself because of that process? Wow. I feel, I feel like I've learned so much. One is that I have abilities and strength that I didn't know I had. Mm-hmm. I've learned that, that I, I think the one thing is that I, I became confident in my ability to be a mom. Mm-hmm. And to help my kids walk through grieving processes and mm-hmm. difficult times. That was mm-hmm. another, that asking for help is not a bad thing. Yes. It's a hard, it still continues to be a hard thing for me. Mm-hmm. And it has made me, I feel like so much more aware of my surroundings, aware of what other families are going through mm-hmm. and empathetic towards them. And mm-hmm. I am often the first phone call that a person makes when they're deciding to walk through the immigration process and I help them with as much free information and help as I can give them because I know what it was like to walk that alone. Yeah. So, so now, and that's the other beautiful thing about going through a challenge, a dark space. It not only allows us to grow as a person, to, to discover, like you said, your strength and your confidence and your ability to have empathy for others. Um, this, this truth, this practice that you need to, for you learn to ask for help more and be mm-hmm. good with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it perfectly positions us to serve. Absolutely. Because now you're just pouring out because you know, you know how alone that feels and why wouldn't you pour out in that? Yeah. And I think another thing that it did, it actually made me active in searching ways to serve versus just like, mm. if somebody, if somebody comes to me to ask for help, then I'll help. I actually like try to look and listen for people who are walking through those processes and say, Hey, we've been there. We've done it. If I can help with anything. So, so they know they're not alone. So how do you do that? How do you how, how are you active about letting others know that that's? So for me, it's more of a, so I work as a Spanish interpreter. So okay. a lot of the families that I work for are undocumented or have family members that are undocumented. And through the process of 
so I work with early intervention a lot. I'm in their homes and every once in a while, they'll just say, so your husband's Mexican and you're not. And they'll ask about our immigration process, which right away, I know that they're going through somebody that they know is going through a process. Okay. After I'm not on the clock, I'll let them know that if there's anything that that I can help with, that I am so willing to help. So I'm seeking them out. I'm listening. I feel like I'm always listening. Yes. To hear those, those cries for, for assistance, those I have no idea what to do feelings that they express. So this is beautiful. You've got a platform here and I may have you help me actually write a transcript of this um, in Spanish. I think that would be really powerful to be able to offer people um, and maybe even just help me create Spanish subtitles. Um, if we could do that, that would be good. But here's why I say that you have an audience right now. Mm-hmm. You have an audience of people I that may not be my listening demographic. I really don't, you know, it doesn't allow me to drill down into who's listening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have an audience who knows people. <laughs> and so somebody listening knows somebody that needs to connect with you and needs to take advantage of what you're offering, which is this wisdom and advice that you, you know, had to walk through this alone space to get for yourself that you don't want them to have to walk through that alone space for themselves. So um, can they reach out to you? If so, how do they do that? Absolutely. My email address is my name, which is Kendra M as in Marie uh-huh. Alvarez Okay. at gmail.com. That's the best way. Often I'm in interpreting sessions and can't answer my phone. Yeah. So the best way is email. Okay. Wonderful. And um, who would be like the ideal person to reach out to you? Like, who are they? What are they thinking? What are they, what are they going through right now? They're thinking, I can't afford an attorney. I have, there's no way that I can do this. Mm -hmm. They're thinking um, the process is just way too daunting because I don't speak English Mm -hmm. and all the paperwork is in English. I can help with that. (laughs) You know, that just hits on something that's like, that's like one of those friction points when you're trying to do the right thing and it feels like everything in your path wants to stop you. Yep. Is that how you felt? (laughs) Absolutely. But I had the benefit of English being my first language. So many families that are here, neither the husband or the wife has English as a first language. They don't know. A lot of people don't even know how to navigate the internet and that kind of thing to find the information they're looking for, let alone find the title of what they're looking for and the form that they need. And it's insane. (laughs) So, uh, so gracious of you. Um, Is there anything about your experience about the alone spaces that you've thought about that you've learned that you wanted to share that I haven't asked you about? Not that I can think of. I think that as you've had me reflecting, I feel like those alone spaces, like you said, can be huge areas of growth. And I think about, I think about a garden. I think especially right now we live out in the country and there's wheat starting to grow. Mm -hmm. That wheat was planted before the cold, before the snow, Mm -hmm. the snow and the cold came, Mm -hmm. the wheat seeds stayed alone under the ground. But that whole time, that whole time there was growth happening. So in my dark space, in my time where I felt really alone, really desperate, there was growth happening. And I think to be able to see that growth at the end. That, 
You that just taste to grow. You just beat me to my last question. So I'll ask it and then you can just reiterate what you just said. <laughs> All right. Um, so I ask everybody, because you just did it. You just said it. I ask everybody um, that I have on the show to leave the people listening and watching with one truth that you don't want them to forget about thriving alone. And yours is? I would say that alone doesn't mean death and being in a dark spot. It means growth and life. Wow. Wait for it. If you choose. If you choose. If you choose. Yes. I love that qualifier. If you choose. So after my conversation with Kendra, I asked her, hey, was that as bad as you thought it was going to be? And she said, of course not. It was great. I loved it. So this is what happens just being on the show, doing something you've never done before. Look, somebody told me once, and I think it was Carrie Spencer on episode maybe three or four, I can't remember, of season one of this podcast that everything that we've ever done, the first time we did it, it was hard. But that's where the growth comes from. So I'm just honored that uh, Kendra trusted me to use this platform as even more growth for her. And as encouragement for you, you can do hard things. Remember, in that alone space, like the wheat that Kendra was talking about, the seeds, they're covered, they're dark, they're alone, but they're getting to grow. You too can use your dark alone spaces to thrive. Friends, if you'd like to learn more, if you'd like to work with me, I'd love to chat with you. All of the links to get in touch with me are in the show notes. You can also be a part of my texting community, which is easy to do. All you need to do is text the word thrive to 540-369-2139. I send you three texts per week, some challenges, some inspirational, but always looking for you to speak truth over the lies so you can thrive.